Good evening. This is a special broadcast of Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is an independent, nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. In tonight's program, moderated by author and journalist Kevin Roderick of LAobserve.com, Dean Paquet will share the story of his ascent from police reporter at his local paper in New Orleans to the most recent assignment as the new editor of the Los Angeles Times. Paquet will also talk about the impact of the Internet on daily journalism and whether the mainstream media really does have a liberal bias. When Dean was announced as the new editor of the paper, most of the staff let out a sigh of relief. They knew him as a staunch defender of journalistic standards in the newsroom and saw him as an advocate in the face of enormous and upsetting pressures, the sagging circulation, dropping ad lineage, the general malaise in the newspaper industry, and demands from the Times ownership in Chicago, the Tribune Company, to quickly do better on the bottom line. Reporters and editors at the paper tell me that the atmosphere is pretty downbeat these days. Several staffers have lost their jobs in recent weeks, and there's rumors in the air of even more widespread layoffs. So I guess the first question should be, why would you take this job? <laughs> Boy, that's a good question. Um, everything you said about, about there being anxiety in the newsroom is true. And I think there's anxiety in all American newsrooms right now. And, and I think part of the reason for that is that somehow we let the business leadership of newspapers take over the conversation about newspapers and whether they're successful or not. Because the reality is, if you take a paper like the LA Times or the New York Times, I'm betting that more people read us today than ever before. And they read us online and in paper. I think that somehow we let the discussion slip away from us. And suddenly the conversation about whether a newspaper is successful or not has gotten to be how profitable it is, what its revenues are and not how many people read it, how valuable it is to the community, how hard-hitting it is, how much of a public service it provides. I mean, I, it is a deeply anxious time in my newsroom, in the newsrooms at the New York Times, the Washington Post, and every other place. What I'm hoping we can do in the coming years is change the conversation back to where it's supposed to be, which is not just how profitable a newspaper is, but how successful it is in other ways. Well, I think we'll have to talk a little more about those bottom line pressures, but maybe first we should sort of establish a baseline and, and let you tell us what you are happy with at the Los Angeles sure. Times, the papers you've taken over. What, you know, what, do you, what do you see as good there? You know, the reality is I think there are only maybe four absolutely terrific American newspapers. Um, and you can put them in any order you choose, but it's the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. And every city I've lived in, there's been local criticism of each paper. But those are the papers that choose to have huge foreign staffs, huge Washington bureaus. Those are the papers that spend a lot of money and resources and energy, not just covering the local communities, but covering the world. I think the LA Times cover to cover has tremendous strengths. Its biggest weakness, which I think is a weakness that has been around for a long time, and to be frank, hasn't gotten better while I was managing editor. Um, was that I don't think it always feels like a paper that's born and bred in Los Angeles. The biggest legitimate criticism of the paper is that there are days when you pick it up and it feels a little generic. It's got great stories on the front, but it feels like it could have been edited in New York or some other place. And I think that that's, that to me is the biggest challenge and the thing I need to change most about the paper. 
Well, that's probably something we should jump right into then, mm -hmm. since, you, sure. since you brought it up. <laughs> uh, I figured I would open it up to... <laughs> uh, well, the question that comes to, to mind, really, is how does that happen at a newspaper that carries the name the Los Angeles Times? I mean, how, uh, how do you see that coming about? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the, the follow-up question is, what do you do about it? I think some of it is, is historic, and, and in this part, I'm fumbling a little bit because I wasn't here. But I think that... The story of the Los Angeles Times rise to being one of the great American newspapers is a remarkable story because most of the papers in that list that I ran through were born good and just got better through generations. The LA Times is a paper that two generations ago, however you want to count it, when Otis Chandler took over the paper, got good fast. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't happen a lot. It may never happen again, especially in the economic climate that newspapers um, have to operate in these days. And I think what Otis did was look to the New York Times as his model. And I think he looked at the New York Times and he said, this is good and I want my paper to be like this. But I would argue that he probably went too far and he built a paper very much like the New York Times, which 70% of is great. But I think what, he, what I would argue that he missed historically and, and I think the paper still struggles with is the part of it that says, of those great papers, we're in the most compelling place. And that doesn't mean, incidentally, just putting more local news stories on the front. That's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. But it means building your foreign staff, your giant foreign staff, different. It means saying, okay, we shouldn't be as heavily invested in Europe. We should be more heavily interested in Asia and Latin America, um, which, which we actually started doing. But I think, I think it's historic, and I think it's just it's been a little harder to change than I thought and I think what it's going to take to be frank is a little more energy and a little pushing on my part. It's going to mean, I don't know, those who saw what the Steve Lopez series on homelessness that we ran on the front page. Shortly after I became editor of the paper, Steve had been writing what I thought were some terrific columns about homelessness and I thought, how can I send a signal that this paper cares deeply about the city? How can I send it fast? So we called him in, me and the Metro editor and his other editor, Sue Horton, and we kicked it around and we agreed that he would do five days on Skid Row and write live, meaning go out, come in, write a story, go out, come in, write a story. And I thought that that was a dramatic way of saying we care about the city, we're going to take risks, we're going to do things differently on the front page. And I think that's a way of my not only telling the city how much I care about it, how much I want us to write about it, but it was my way of telling the staff, we can do this. We don't have to abide by the rules. Let's just do something completely different. Was it also an announcement that there's now an, uh, an official or semi-official Times crusade going on about Skid Row? I have, this is my fifth city that I've lived in. And when I was a reporter, I traveled a lot. And I'm not sure I've seen a big city that had such a dramatic but sort of hidden problem with homelessness. Um, and I was looking for a way to highlight it in dramatic fashion. So, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna now go visit the editorial writers and tell them to opine on the subject. But I think if highlighting it in dramatic fashion was a crusade, I guess it was. I just didn't quite think of it that. I think it, it evolved the way I think great newspaper stories evolve, which is really good coverage highlighting something that maybe at least I didn't know enough about and the rest of my editors get more interested in. Are there other topics like that that you'd see on the local scene that you'd like to take on or other structural statements you intend to make about local coverage? Yeah, I think there are a handful of beats 
that a paper's got a master and they differ from city to city before you can really say you're engaged in covering your local community. Um, I think we can do better with immigration. I think we can do better with education. We have some terrific education reporters, but I think we can shape the coverage a little better. What can you actually do? The Times has been covering the schools here in mm -hmm. education for a long time, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes better than other times. Mm -hmm. it's, it seems to go in cycles. Um, what do you see that the paper can actually do to improve uh, what it actually reports? I mean, this is one where I'll make the case why I don't regard my job as, as crusading. I think that covering schools and covering education is one of the hardest things a newspaper has to do. It's a story about institutions and their struggles, so it's a, it's a governmental story about whether or not schools deliver. Schools are also the place for writing a lot about youth and the sociology of youth and the future of the city. And I think most newspapers do well at one and not the other. I think we probably do better at the at the institutional part, and I'd like to see us do better at the part that gives a, f a sense of the city. The, the, the other complicating factor in L.A. is that, like New York, you have this huge array of private schools that we hardly ever write about. Um, when I say we, I mean the press, not just the L.A. Times, except in a very cliched, rich kid kind of way. And then you throw in the fact that we don't just cover L.A. County. You know, we have this whole you know, array of stuff we have to cover. And I think we could do better at all of that. Should we expect to see reallocation of resources and, you know, are there going to be foreign and national reporters coming back to report on Los Angeles? In a I big would, way? yes. We have so much talent abroad and in Washington that I have to figure out a way to entice those people back willingly to cover Los Angeles. Because otherwise, I mean, we'll have this odd system with terrific, tremendous writers writing with more insight about Europe than, than about California. Um, um, today, the Columbia Journalism Review ran an editorial, <coughs> I don't know if you saw it, describing America's newspapers as at a crossroads. They led their piece with a reporter who doesn't even read her own newspaper anymore because it's boring and irrelevant to her life. No, she was not from Los Angeles as far as I was didn't ask for the name. They didn't disclose where she worked, but we don't know. But then the editors of the Columbia Journalism Review urged the editors of America's newspapers to take a look at their front pages today and ponder how many stories were about events that readers had already heard something about. And the bottom line is, do you want to read this newspaper? So you've been a newspaper hand for a long time. Uh, is the Los Angeles Times a newspaper that you want to read? Yeah, actually, I think if you look at today's front page, um, I think it fits that beautifully. There were three stories on the front page about the Bush administration's um, new nominee for the Supreme Court. There was an in-depth story on the front page about the abortion case that he was involved in that is likely to be the great subject of debate in the coming weeks in Congress. And there was a third story that was a first cut at a profile of this guy. And I mean, I think, I think that's a compelling package. There was also a I thought, a column one with voice by Alex Tizan, written from Louisiana. It was a very simple story about a 67-year-old woman and her 47-year-old son who lived in an urban part of New Orleans, who now, this is the column one, who now live in this rural community, and the two of them talking on the porch about how hard a transition for them that is, with the mother who was very religious saying that she's happy being where she is, and the son 
bored out of his brain. And it was a true feature story in the sense that it was just about these two people and their lives, and it was revealing. And then there was a story I would consider fun, um, which is about the rise of video on your phone and the likelihood that that's going to take off. And I thought it was written with verve. And then there was a story at the bottom of the front page about the UN's resolution involving Syria, which if newspapers don't cover aggressively and put on the front page, who will? I think I owned up in the very beginning to what our flaws are. But I think papers like the LA Times, and this predates me, still have a tremendous investment in trying to make their papers interesting. They kind of hinted at a, an era, a new era of limits for newspapers, mm -hmm. um, driven by corporate pressures and, again, the loss of, of circulation and mm -hmm. advertising. Um, today's Times, there was a 10-page section devoted to skiing, you know, arguably a fading sport, but with some popularity, <laughs> and the future of Mammoth Mountain. There were five pages of stock and mutual fund tables, and the conversely, the entire classified section only ran to 10 pages. And in years past, it would have been 10 times that. Mm -hmm. uh, in this new era of limits, I mean, are, are there things that you really think a newspaper should not be doing anymore or won't be doing five or 10 years from now? Sure. It won't be very long from now until newspapers won't publish stock tables. There was a time when it was the only way to find out how your stocks did. And you can make the argument that it's sort of a free ad for X number of companies. I think any day now, nobody will run stock tables, with the idea being that you can find it elsewhere. Um, newspapers like Los Angeles Times have profit margins that in other businesses would be considered obscene. And I think somehow this conversation, the national conversation about newspapers, has left that out. When I was named editor of the LA Times, I, I ran into a friend of mine who's a businessman who said, well, I hope you can make the paper profitable. And I said, well, first off, that's not my job. But I told him what our profit margin was, and he was shocked. He thought that given the publicity about newspapers, we lost money. We print money. <laughs> and we, we have plenty enough money. The struggle is, now that newspapers are publicly held, the struggle for newsrooms is to fight to hold on to the money we need to provide the public service we provide, because there's a lot of pressure on businesses to return money to shareholders. The Times circulation director, Jack Clunder, mm -hmm. said recently in the in-house newsletter that the content of the paper, quote, must become more relevant to the readers mm -hmm. for the paper to turn around in circulation problems. <clears throat> it raises a question about what do you think the role of the editor of a paper is in building circulation or connecting with readers, uh, mm -hmm. trying to turn around the sense of decline surrounding newspapers, including the Los Angeles Times. Is that part of the editor's role these days? Um, yes and no. I, w I was once in a meeting with the business side, and there was somebody who's, who's no longer with the company, and they were, we were having a debate about what the role of a newspaper, and I said, the difference between us and Wendy's or McDonald's, one of the differences is if Wendy's decides that hamburgers don't sell and chicken sandwiches sell, Wendy's will stop serving hamburgers. Wendy's does not think it has an obligation to keep hamburgers on its menu. Um, <laughs> If we took a readership survey tomorrow and it said that nobody wanted to read about the war in Iraq, I would still keep four people in Baghdad who are risking their lives to cover the story. And I don't give a damn if 
readers don't want to read about Baghdad. I have got to cover Baghdad. And that's one of my obligations, and that's why I have an amendment to the Constitution. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that I have to do. I do think, though, that newspapers have gotten a little bit out of touch with their readers. And I, I think one of the big unremarked upon developments in the lives of newspapers is that um, one of the dramatic changes in the way newspapers are composed these days is when I started in newspapers, reporters were more working class than they are now. And reporters were more likely to be spread across the city. Reporters made less money. <laughs> um, there were more papers. Everybody had, every city had two papers. And I think reporters were more likely to have kids in public school. They were more likely to be affected by the school board and the city council. They were more likely to, you know, do their own work on expanding their garages or whatever. And I think one of the, one of the things that have made newspapers better, but a little less in touch, is that newspaper reporters are better educated and make a little more money. Um, there are fewer of them because there are half as many newspapers. And I think you can make the argument we're a little bit out of touch and we need to get in better touch with our communities. I want to know what people want to read in newspapers. I want to know what readers want. But I'm not going to give you everything you want. Back a little bit to the, the four reporters in Baghdad. Yeah. What do you do if the Tribune Company doesn't want to pay for four reporters in, in Baghdad anymore? Well, guess what? We didn't get any more money to keep four reporters in Baghdad. We keep four reporters in Baghdad by taking a little bit from here, taking a little bit from there. You know, it's a big paper, and if you're cutting bits and pieces of other parts of the paper to keep four people in Baghdad. But as you ask the job of the editor of a newspaper today, obviously caring about how many people read you has got to be part of it. But the main job of an editor is to, in a collaborative way, have a vision for the paper and have a vision for the coverage and stick to it no matter what the forces around you if your vision if your vision is something that's important and is true to what the paper is supposed to do your emphasis every step along the way including here has been investigative reporting mm -hmm. is that something that you see uh, on the increase at the time yeah. is this something the public wants is it something <coughs> that uh, you're going to have to find a way to pay for what's the um you know most of my career was spent as an investigative reporter in new orleans chicago and new york i think it is one of the most important things we do we've done a lot more from the stories about the getty stories about king drew hospital you'll see a lot more of it i believe people want to read it because they comment on it but i think it's one of those vital things you gotta do anyway to have real impact on your community and to perform a public service you have to have a powerful investigative component Let's put a few other issues on the table. You had uh, been involved in and strongly defended the uh, Times investigative report in 2003 on Arnold Schwarzenegger, mm -hmm. then candidate Schwarzenegger's mm -hmm. uh, past with women. Mm -hmm. those, kind of, those stories about <coughs> accusations of groping have kind of taken off a life of their own. They're often cited by critics of the paper and ex-readers as clear evidence of a Times tilt to the left in the news pages. Um, many people do regard the Times as predictably liberal in its coverage, if not always on the editorial page. So I just wonder where you come down on the great liberal bias <coughs> debate, and, and more generally, uh, is the current model of journalistic balance working, uh, or do you think there's a future cry out for a new model? I think that the criticism of the LA Times for having a liberal bias is exaggerated for effect. Um, I think that it's Total objectivity is impossible to achieve. 
And I always thought that the, that the right word was, shouldn't be objective, it should be fair. What newspapers should strive for is fairness. I think the LA Times has a bias born of the fact that our writers and editors and photographers live in communities and maybe see, see certain stories first before they see other stories. I think that it's, you know, when I, when I was a reporter, when I would go to a, a state like parts of Texas and or home to Louisiana to be reminded how religious America is, um, which you don't really get a sense of in Los Angeles as much as you do if you go to East Texas or if you go to parts of Arkansas. It's just, it's a dramatic reminder of how out of touch we can be. I think that a bias may emerge in newspapers when we miss that. I think we caricature the religious right. I don't think the religious right is just you know, um, Ralph Reed and people pushing for one Supreme Court justice. I think it's more complicated than that. I think there are, there are African Americans on the religious right in the South. There are, you know, highly educated people who are part of the religious right. It's a complicated picture. And I think we may display a bias when we don't quite understand that. Um, but by and large, I think it's one of those charges that's pretty significantly exaggerated. On Arnold, I think that that's one of my proudest moments at the Los Angeles Times. <laughs> I, I was at a panel once and a guy got up and said, my grandmother stopped her um, subscription to the paper because of the Arnold stories. What would you tell her? And I said, I would tell her if she was here that we were right. <laughs> that, that he pretty much owned up to it within a couple of days. Um, that, that as the stories emerged from the women and they became more public, I don't think anybody doubts that that was a fair story. The complaint was the timing of the story. But, you know, we st it was a condensed election. There was very little time. It wasn't your usual six-month election cycle. By the time we finished it and had it written and edited, we had a choice. The choice we had to make four or five days before the election is, do you take that story and put it in a drawer and not publish it for some, I would argue, perverted sense of fairness? Or do you publish that story because this is when you finished it and let the readers and the voters decide for themselves. Not reporting something is a political act, um, and we're not supposed to do political acts. Reporting something and publishing it is an act of journalism, and that's what we did. And in fact, the public did speak. He was elected governor. So you wouldn't have handled that any differently? <clears throat> the only thing I would have done differently um, is I think I would have I would have had a box or a, a letter from me or John accompanying the story or else I would have edited it into the story, explaining why the timing and explaining some of the circumstances. Because I think there were readers who legitimately were baffled and thought we were just out to, to screw him during the election. That's not what it was about. I think we could have been more open and just explained it to people. I don't think we anticipated how much criticism there would be. Uh, one of the issues that I hear about a lot at LA Observed, it seems to be the shrinkage of the sports section. Mm -hmm. uh, question comes up is, you know, what is your personal connection to the world of sports and how mm -hmm. important do you see that as the package that the time provides compared to fashion coverage or uh, the outdoor section or, you know, the magazine, something right. like that? We cut it too much um, because of all the financial stuff we talked about. I mean, the way it works, it, the business side gives you a certain number of news hold pages for the year. And sports at the LA Times used to be too fat. And there were literally like 40 special sections a year. It was too big. Weren't and they profitable? 
however? Mm, I don't know whether they were profitable, but I doubt it. Hmm. To me, it wasn't a question of profitability. It skewed the paper. I mean, the news, the amount of pages and ink that went for sports was dramatically higher hmm. than the amount that went into the A section or the B section. We cut it, and then as times got tougher, we cut it too much, and I think now it's too tight, and next year I'd like to restore some space to it. <laughs> it needs more space. I agree. I also asked on LA Observe for people to, to write in their kind of things they would like <coughs> to ask you about. You want to field some of those questions? Sure. Mm -hmm. Someone who uh, has straddled both the journalism and political spheres in <coughs> Los Angeles emailed me to sort of, to, to wanted to know whether you're concerned about what he calls, quote, the collective loss of institutional memory about Los Angeles at the Times. Um, and that ties mm -hmm. into the, the sense that's been reported some places, including by me, that there mm -hmm. is a, a certain turning off of the Times by the news junkies of Los Angeles. They don't consider the Times as expert about Los Angeles as it's been in the past. Uh, does that concern you? Yeah, I think that's what I was referring to when I said earlier that I have to work on local coverage. I think we, I mean, it's, it seems like history now, but before September 11th, everybody said Washington is irrelevant. Suddenly after September 11th, Washington and the Middle East became the biggest stories going. We put a lot of energy into those places, and I think that I didn't put enough energy into local. Um, what is your vision for the feature side of the paper? And is its future also kind of writing on how you negotiate the, the financial pressures? Um, I like calendar a whole lot. I'd like to see more coverage of books and calendar. It's just a terrific, serious magazine, and, and we're going to relaunch it next year. Actually, I think now's the time to open it up for questions from the audience. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the calendar section. For a lot of us, um, mm -hmm. it doesn't seem that there's an awareness that there's a cultural life east of La Brea. And I'm wondering <laughs> if that will be addressed. As well as the shifts, the I mean, one of the great joys of the weekend was always the Sunday calendar, yeah. which I now honestly don't understand why it's in two parts. It could be one. Um, a lot of that has shifted to Thursday. And just if you could talk a little bit sure. about the shifts in the calendar section. Sure. I'll start with the, with the, um, with the why it's in two parts on Sunday. It's actually in two parts for a, for a um, journalistic reason. We thought that the movie coverage of calendar is so big and overwhelming that the other forms of culture in LA were, were getting lost, whether it's photography, whether it's um, music, whether it's visual arts. So we thought that the way to make sure that movies didn't completely take over the, the paper's cultural coverage was to take the non-movie cultural coverage and give it its own section. Um, I also hated the tabloid, the calendar tabloid, which I know most a lot of people love. Um, we killed it because I thought, um, and please don't throw things at me, I thought, <laughs> I thought it was unreadable as a tabloid. I thought you couldn't show photography with any power. I thought you couldn't run stories of any length. I thought it was just this big, awkward package buried in a Sunday paper that, to be frank, is already a little awkwardly put together. Um, the business side did not want calendar turned to a broadsheet. It was John and I that fought to make it a broadsheet because we thought, how, I mean, how could something that is at least supposed to be about visual arts survive as this sort of truncated thing? As to the other criticism of calendar, um, I think part of that is the movie part of calendar is so dominant that it sometimes pushes out the rest of the cultural life of the city. 
um, I, I think I answered your question earlier when I, th when I said I think we've got to get better at that part of the coverage. You've spoken um, a little bit this evening about your desire to focus more on the LA community, about um, focusing on immigration and education. I was just hoping you could expand on other sure. um, focus could, areas. I think we could, you know, I mean, <laughs> I think we could do a better job of writing about health care. I think that we made, a, we made a decision to put our best health care reporters on the King Drew series, which I don't regret. I thought it was a, it was a, it was a really important series. But we probably missed some health care trend stories during the period when they were working on that. Um, I think that we do a really good job of covering the, the national economy. And I think we've done some really risky stories about the national economy better than other papers. We could probably write better, and we will, about the local economy. Um, we cover Hollywood fairly extensively, but I think we could probably be a bit tougher in our coverage of Hollywood. I mean, those are some things right off the bat. I could probably name ten more. If you ask any editor what he wants to do better, he's going to have a long list, or he or she would have a long list. So that's the top of mind. You've been listening to a special presentation of Zocalo, an evening with Dean Baquet, the new editor of the Los Angeles Times, moderated by journalist Kevin Roderick of LAobserve.com. The Los Angeles Public Library and Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., present this monthly lecture series sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Special thanks to Semper Law Group, Washington Mutual, the National Center for the Preservation of Democracy in Little Tokyo, the Los Angeles Times, LAobserve.com, and the Library Foundation of Los Angeles for making this program possible. For more information or to listen to past shows, please visit ZocaloLA.org. Thanks for joining us.